Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1961, Robert Penn Warren expressed some thoughtful opinions in a short book titled The Legacy of the Civil War, Meditations on the Centennial. Now, 60 years later, that legacy remains as unresolved and contested as ever. Ten historians recently came together to offer a fresh look at aspects of the conflict in its memory in a book titled The Long Civil War, New Explorations of America's Enduring Conflict. It's edited by John David Smith and Raymond Arsenault, and we'll talk tonight with co-editor John David Smith on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the questionable safety of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University uh, here at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters. Not, however, speaking for East Carolina University or any other institution, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself, as we always do. I say questionable safety because they are continuing the investigation into the environmental health of the office building I've been in for 17 years uh, to see if, in fact, there's any connection between the building and the uh, statistically unusual large number of pancreatic cancer cases among faculty. It's, it's not a happy subject. Hopefully it's no more than a coincidence, but uh, I'll let you know. Uh, most haven't been in the office very much over the last year, year and a half because of the pandemic. But uh, most recently in our neighborhood, the internet has been going on and off at random times, and I did not want to risk talking to you and have the internet shut down in the middle and bring our conversation to a screeching halt. 
So while uh, life and limb are not secure here in the Brewster building, the internet always works. And that's why we're happy to be here tonight. Uh, East Carolina is also, of course, the home of the Pirates, uh, whose football team, well, I'll, I will just say that football is a sport where you, you, you never know what's going to happen. Last Saturday at 5 p.m., my alma mater, the University of Michigan, was comfortably ahead of their opponent at halftime. I turned off the TV, walked, went out down to the stadium to watch the ECU game starting at 6, and uh, 90 minutes later, by 6.30, suddenly Michigan is about to give up the tying touchdown, and ECU is down 14 nothing in the first quarter against a, a lower division team that they should handily beat. What is going on? Uh, things turned around. Michigan held on. They won their game, and ECU recovered and won its game by an unacceptably close margin, but nothing is easy. And then the next day, I'm not an NFL uh devotee by any means, but I was born and raised in Detroit, so I have vestigial loyalty to the hapless Lions, and discovered this past weekend for the second time in their history, they lost a game on the last play by the other team, setting a new record for the longest field goal ever. Happened back in 1970 when I was just a lad and learned never to trust the Lions, and it happened again uh, this weekend. That team is cursed. Uh, also possibly cursed is uh, the the fortune we've been having with this year's Stephen Ambrose historical tours uh, trip. We're headed off to see this hallowed ground uh, October 8th to 16th, and we're now hoping that our representatives in Washington can avoid a government shutdown that would close all the national park sites while we're out there. That would be uh, a bad thing. Not a not a. It wouldn't end the tour. There are private sites and uh, state sites and other things we would see and have a a good time and an educational time, but we're really hoping that that everything is still open for us. The trip is on regardless. If you're you're scheduled for the trip, we'll be there. It'll be fun. Uh, Other things that will be fun will be the continued shows on this program. Coming up next week, we'll be talking with uh, Chris Moore about J. William Jones, someone I know nothing about yet, but I will when I've read the book. The title of the book is Apostle of the Lost Cause, J. William Jones, Baptists, and the Development of Confederate Memory. Following week, it's off to see the Civil War sites. We'll be back with a live show on October 20th. Uh, Ronald C. White We'll be discussing his new book, Lincoln in Private, what his most personal reflections tell us about our greatest president. And we'll welcome back David Mowry, friend of the show, on the 27th of October, talking about Cincinnati and the Civil War. And we've got our lineup for the rest of the fall semester set. I'll give that to you quickly now. Uh, On the 3rd of November, Michael K. Brantley has written a personal book about a relative of his. It's called Galvanized, the Odyssey of a Reluctant Carolina Confederate. On the 10th of November, Brad Asher will be our guest. He writes about the most hated man in Kentucky, the lost cause and the legacy of Union General Stephen Burbridge. And we'll continue, uh, we'll, I guess, move back to the Confederate side on the 17th, Charles Knight, Uh, He has written From Arlington to Appomattox, Robert E. Lee's Civil War Day by Day. It is extremely detailed, and I'm not going to promise that I'll read all 500 pages of it, but enough that we can have a good conversation. 
no live show on Thanksgiving, but we'll finish up the season uh, with two more shows in December. On December 1st, uh, Caroline Janey returns to the show with her new book, Ends of War, The Unfinished Fight of Lee's Army After Appomattox, and wrap up the season with Deborah Willis and her National Book Award nominee, The Black Civil War Soldier, A Visual History of Conflict and Citizenship. That'll bring us to winter break. We'll all be ready for that by that time. In the meantime, you can always see what's happening at impedimentsofwar.org, the website, or the Impediments of War uh, Facebook page, both kept up to date by Mark Gaffney. You can buy your books there, click on the links, and uh, that helps us out here. You can also donate to the Civil War Book and Libation Fund through the website. It is not tax deductible. It's not a charity. Uh, I can do what I want with the money. Although this week, if you do donate in the week ahead, I will be uh, using those proceeds for a GoFundMe for a friend of mine whose nephew is undergoing medical expenses. Uh, I'm not going to post the link anywhere because that gets us into a rabbit hole of numerous worthy causes but if you do donate that's where your money will go this week and if you're curious about it uh, send me an email and I'll, I'll send you the direct link if you want to help fund that uh, but if you just want to help out the show and uh, in this case do do a personal favor to me so I can uh, channel more to my friend's nephew uh you can do that at www.impedimentsofwar.org and the PayPal button. Tonight, we are talking about the long Civil War, New Explorations of America's Enduring Conflict. It's an essay collection edited by John David Smith and Raymond Arsenault, uh, who I believe has been on the show before, but John David Smith has not, and in, in spite of uh, attempts to, to get him on many, many years ago. Uh, J- John David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jerry. Uh, I'm really uh, sorry to hear about Brewster. I've spoken there twice um, with, with no uh, symptoms, except uh, the stimulation that I had from your, your students and colleagues at uh, ECU. Well, I'm glad to hear that. You're at uh, at Charlotte, I believe. Is that right? Uh, UNC yeah, Charlotte? Yeah, UNC Charlotte. I, I was at NC State for 22 years, and then I had a chance to come to Charlotte, and I'm in my almost my 18th year here. Wow. And I know you know a lot of my colleagues here, Karen Zip and other people uh, mention sure. your name regularly, uh, so I, I feel like I feel like we've met not only through that connection, but also uh, your connection to the, the late and much lamented Lincoln Museum of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Yeah, uh, yeah. Tell, yeah. Tell us about of course, your, when I was there, it had a different name when I was there. It was called the Lewis A. Warren Lincoln Library and Museum. Yes. And when was that? Um, Mark Neely, who was the director, and of course who you know, mm-hmm. um hired me, uh, actually was as I was finishing my Ph.D. at uh, Kentucky in 1977. And uh, I started uh, a couple of weeks after I defended my dissertation and received my degree. And I was uh, in Fort Wayne from uh, 77 until um, 79 when I um, received a, um, a position in Columbia, South Carolina. 
so so you got to see the museum in in its uh, years under Mark Neely, who uh, listeners yeah. know is a Pulitzer Prize winning historian, uh, uh, writing about Lincoln and civil liberties and many other books since then. Right. Uh, Yes, yes. Mark, Mark, it was like a postdoctoral education in some respects. As I really um, was not an aficionado of Lincoln. Um, I, I was in more of the Lerone Bennett school. Uh, and of course, all these articles by George Fredrickson and uh, other people, uh, Jim McPherson, um, all, all of whom I got to know during my mm-hmm. long career. Um, they, there was a, all this just, and uh, uh, Don Perenbacher, of course, there were all these historiographical pieces published uh, during my graduate school uh, years and after I got out. And there I was surrounded with the largest collection of information on any one person in the world. Uh, and it was all about Lincoln. And, and as uh, working for Mark Neely, I, I was involved with doing editing and curating and leading some tours, and I learned an enormous amount. And, and you know, since then, I've published on Lincoln, mm-hmm. and this semester, in fact, I'm teaching a, uh, a capstone course uh, on Lincoln, The Man and the Myth. Uh, so uh, I can blame Mark Neely for this. Wow. That, that, well, you know, I, I had sort of a similar experience in that I – was I went to graduate school not really thinking Lincoln would be where I would specialize, but I, I got to work with David Herbert Donald, and that yeah. got me into the Lincoln yeah. world. But yeah. then working at the Lincoln Museum, as you say, to be in this, this incubator, oh, this wonderful library, all these artifacts. Yeah. Uh, it, it was what a great experience. So, uh, yeah, um, not, not only that, but we had all these wonderful people coming through. Yeah, exactly. Uh, back then, there was the uh, a lecture series, uh, and I was involved with uh, two, at least two of them. And mm-hmm. who comes uh, who comes strolling in but Don Ferenbacher, who I had a, a, a short <laughs> postdoc with at, at Stanford, and, and uh, Dick Current, and all these people, uh, Frank Williams, uh, and... Uh, Somebody that really wasn't that well known at the time, a chap you know, by the name of Harold Holzer. Yes. Um, you know, who, who was doing pretty much just uh, Neely and he and others, uh, Gabor Borat, who, of mm-hmm. course, you know, I mean, it's a small, you know, the Lincoln fraternity. Uh, but, but, you know, they all were there. But there's one thing I wanted to say, uh, did you, or to ask and to, then to state, was Lewis Warren alive when you were there? It, he was not. I never met Lewis Warren. Well, I sure did. He came in every uh, week, uh, and really? and Mark Mark was very uh, gentle and very kind, but had a job to do. So guess right. who who had the opportunity to talk to, to Lewis Warren ad nauseum? That was me, the young whippersnapper with a freshly minted PhD, and uh, that that was an experience. I can, I can imagine that the McMurtry lecture series you're mentioning. I recall uh, inviting uh, Lerone Bennett to speak at that. That was probably the most controversial mm. thing I did when I was at the museum. Uh, it was in 2001. And uh, of course, you know, listeners know Bennett wrote Forced into Glory and other yes. books, uh, yes. articles critical of Lincoln. But he was, he was incredibly gracious and uh, gave a great talk. And we drew a huge audience and probably the most diverse audience we'd ever drawn. And uh, Terrific. It, it was just—it was just a great institution to be part of to to, uh, yeah. to bring the Lincoln you, story. You to weren't people. publishing the lectures at that point, were you? 
by that time we had stopped doing that. They were, yeah. we, we, I think we started putting them in Lincoln lore. Um, yeah. But they, yeah, they were yeah. no longer published. I, I actually, uh, I have a full run of the, of, of the lectures, you know, hard copies. And I'm mm-hmm. just delighted to have that collection. And then after I left, um, um, and I think it was after you left, uh, I was involved with Lincoln Lore again. I wrote a couple of our, uh, of, mm-hmm. um, when, when Mark was over his head with work, they asked me to, to write a couple of the uh, issues of it. But then right. I got to review Mark's Pulitzer Prize winning book in two uh, issues of Lincoln Lore, which was quite an event. Yes, uh, that was... Uh, it, it, it's I mean, it's just tragic that the Lincoln National Corporation chose to close that museum and disperse its collection uh, for the most part. I guess m- much, of the, uh, much of the, the, the material is still at the, the uh, public library in Fort Wayne, the Allen County yeah, Public so the, Library. Yeah, of Allen County, yeah, right. which, which had it. When I was there, and I used to, I don't know if you were there, but I... I the the library shut down at uh, the the whole place at Lincoln Life shut down on Fridays at noon, so I made a beeline every Friday. There was a classical music uh, store across the street, and on my way out of out of the life insurance company, mm-hmm. uh, which was a rather curious place for me to be in. Yeah. But, uh, that's a whole nother, that's another whole story. Um, but I would go to that library, and that had the, one of the, the second largest uh, genealogical collection in the United States after the Newberry library. They did. It was, it was enormous. And, and uh, so we had all these primary sources were available there. It, yeah. One wouldn't think of Fort Wayne, Indiana as such a center for Lincoln and, and historical scholarship, no. uh, but it certainly no. was. Well, listeners, we yep. are, I promise you we're going to talk about tonight's book, The Long Civil War, New Explorations of America's Enduring Conflict. Our guest tonight is uh, co-editor John David Smith. We'll be back after a short break and actually talk about the book. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Attention veterans, are you ready to be your own boss? It's time to launch your own ideas into reality. Discover your clean writing style. Gear up with Marine Corps trained motivator, Christina Silva. Christina is a positive energy promoter with a special gift in connecting with innovators. Get the Military Heroes 411 and glean from experts every week by listening to The Christina Silva Show. We're educating our veterans live on The Christina Silva Show, live at 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with John David Smith, who is co-editor of the essay collection, The Long Civil War, New Explorations of America's Enduring Conflict. Um, John David, let me ask a, 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 a process question. How, how, mm-hmm. how, how do editors put together collections like this? Uh, they, don't, uh, they don't organize themselves. How, how did you go about uh, deciding there should be such a collection and, and recruiting people? How did this happen? Yeah, most people who uh, do this kind of thing, and I've done a number of these, uh, say it's like herding cats, you know. Mm. And in, in some ways it is. And the way this one came about, we wanted to honor a very dear friend, uh, Professor Randall Miller um, at St. Joseph's University. And it so happened that... Um, I identified uh, historians who all had worked around the Civil War era in one way or another. And, of course, we had probably twice as many submissions. And it's a, it's, it's a very difficult process to weed these things out and, and have to say to people, I'm sorry, but we can't use your essay, and, and, and say nice things about work that, for various reasons, wasn't appropriate. It either wasn't on, related to the theme that, that seemed to be uh, running through the, the best pieces. And um, I was lucky in that I have always been interested in, as, as, an, as a, someone who was trained in intellectual history, Civil War era intellectual history, particularly on, on racial thought, um, the idea of the ubiquity of the American Civil War and American thought. In fact, I read that um, the first version of that uh, Robert Penn Warren uh, book, which mm-hmm. appeared, as you may recall, serially, um, and, it, and it began in Life magazine in, in 1961. Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately, we were able, my, my co-editor Ray Arsenault and I, uh, were, were able to select the pieces that we thought uh, supported a central theme. As you know, Jerry, the, 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 the pro forma, you, obvious criticism that people uh, in book reviews uh, uh, levy at books mm-hmm. like this is it doesn't have a central theme. It's very easy to make criticism, but it's even, but it's much harder to construct a book that has a a, a theme, um, not just honoring someone. Uh, that's why mm-hmm. the, uh, the the term "fetchrift" uh, no longer is in subtitles of these books, or uh, or the language uh, uh, essays in honor of such and such a historian. So, um, if it, it, if the readers, or the listeners, and then the readers of the book. We'll read the introduction, which I wrote. Um, mm-hmm. The hook. The hook is uh, the the long civil war. So, what does that mean? When? How long is the civil war then? Yeah. Well, the way I looked at it, instead of viewing it as, you know, there's the antebellum era, and then there's the war, and then there's the post-war world. Uh, I viewed the conflict as a transbellum experience that um, obviously people couldn't talk or think about the Civil War 
before the war, but they sure were talking about it. Uh, you know, you can go back to uh, the fire bell in the night and um, the, the Nashville Convention of 1850. And the, uh, the, we're, we're reading new books all the time now about the, uh, the westward look of um, mm-hmm. southern politicians and southern intellectuals about extending slavery and the so-called, quote, southern way of life, which, of course, has always been a euphemism for white supremacy and slavery and, 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 and racial superiority by, by Caucasians. So what we came up with was a collection of essays that um, underscored the idea that the American Civil War was and is a war that simply won't go away. It, it keeps on giving scholars like you and me, as well as wonderfully a regiment upon regiment of laymen and women mm-hmm. alike, ideas for rethinking not just the war itself, but its legacies and its broader messages and meanings, its ongoingness. I didn't make that word up. Um, <laughs> historian Paul Anderson at Clemson made that word mm-hmm. up, but it has a certain ring to it and a postmodern feel. Uh, an ongoingness. Um, the introductory essay that I wrote on the long, the long things, mm-hmm. you're very aware of this, the long 19th century, the right. long civil rights era, uh, the long French Revolution. Everybody's talking about these um, extended meanings of well-worn labels for historical events. And in my understanding, and hopefully it's the light motif that touches each of the uh, articles, the ten articles, is that we as a society continue to have an obsessive fascination with the Civil War, uh, its impact, its long-range relevance to our society. Um, In a nutshell, is is what we're after there. So... It's even longer than, than say, uh, Vernon Burton's conceptualization of the age of Lincoln, which covers most mm-hmm. of the 19th century. Your your book here, these essays, take the story well into the 20th and even the 21st century. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The, the, the articles were arranged, as you nicely said, there are 10 of them, uh, in addition to the, the introduction that I wrote. Uh, they start in the... Um, even the pre-Mexican War period, and go through the antebellum period sort of quickly, deals with uh, abolition uh, and, and abolitionist politics. And then it gets into the war, per se, dealing with uh, disabled U.S. Army veteran, um, the Veteran Reserve Corps, uh, and these invalid officers, and into mm-hmm. Reconstruction, because they served in, um, as you know, in the Freedmen's Bureau. And then I deal with the post-war South and the post-war North, um, a wonderful piece by uh, the scholar Diane Miller Somerville. On, mm-hmm. As you know, she's written a, a major book on suicide right. and its broad cultural and political meanings. But she, in that book, she didn't deal with um, uh, the political rhetoric of suicide uh, following the war in the South. And she has a very interesting argument and then uh, the late 19th century North and military thought with a piece on 
Emery Upton, and then my own piece that deals with World War One and a and a very prominent and much attacked Southern historian whose work you know, Ulrich von L. Phillips. And then we deal with Lincoln in the 20th century by um, uh, James Oliver Horton. And I'm sorry to report the recently deceased Lois Horton, who uh-huh. died last week unexpectedly. I did um, not know that. A horrible and big loss, big loss, mm. a wonderful historian. And then uh, I'll wrap this up with mentioning mm-hmm. the last three articles w- without going into too much detail at all on them. Uh, an article by the intellectual historian Stephen Whitfield on um, uh, Southern the, the persistence of the Civil War in, in conservative Southern uh, white persons' thought, and a very original essay by Michael Berkner on Eisenhower and the Civil War, and bringing it up uh, through the, the Disney Channel, and uh, at least up till 1966, uh, Ray Arsenault's, um, I, I think, very creative piece on Walt Disney's historical films. They're not just films about the Civil War, uh, but he certainly does talk about Disney's vision of the American Civil War during the Cold War. Well, let's let's start at the back end with that one because I, I wanted to ask about that particularly. Yeah. The, uh, his essay is about you know, Disney and history, and people routinely use Disney as a a word of criticism, the Disneyfication yeah. of, of history is to is not meant as a compliment. Uh, I was interested to learn from this essay, though the the path by which Walt Disney himself came to do historical films. Uh, mm-hmm. The first one that, that is talked about here is Song of the South from 1946. Yeah. And listeners, if you haven't seen it it's because disney corporation doesn't want you to it's very very hard to access this film today it's not online anywhere um they they don't want it seen um based on on this essay what that seems to be very uh, that makes a lot of sense after reading this essay why they would not want this film shown today yeah well arsenal like other cultural historians, positions the films uh, within the the period in which they existed. Mm-hmm. Periods of anxieties, um, national traumas, post-World War II, Cold War, Korea. But these are all constructions. Mm-hmm. And they they deal with nostalgic images, and traditional values. But the, the point that Arsenault makes about, um, one of several that he makes about mm-hmm. um, the Disney business is that at least when he was dealing with the Civil War and the best known Disney film or Disney, just think of Seth Parker when I had my coonskin cap, you know, uh, in yes. the 1950s. You know, mm-hmm. I'm older than you are, but see, you, you probably don't remember uh, the Davy Crockett movie. Um, but I remember but, the song. I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I, I was humming it uh, as a little boy, of course, uh, with my coonskin cap. But the, the film that um, I think best represents uh, what uh, Arsenal's trying to do there is the 1956 The Great Locomotive Chase. 
mm-hmm. the uh, James Andrews um, military or a- extra military action in uh, April 1862 in North Georgia. Uh, not that far removed from the Battle of Shiloh uh, uh, in terms of its timing. Mm -hmm. Uh, The thing that Arsenault says is that by this time, uh, Disney had an obsession with historical accuracy. He really wanted to get it right, and he hired people. He hired professionals. From everything to the, the locomotives that are used, they were replicas but the very good replicas to the uniforms. Disney, as you started out saying, is usually used as a pejorative, right. particularly people in your, in your business and my business. Mm-hmm. The Disneyfication. In fact, and I'm sure you know the book that I used to use in a public history seminar, a Mickey Mouse History, and yes. other essays. You remember that book published by Temple University Press. Mm-hmm. And it's not a compliment to say that you know you're in a, it, you know you're following Walt Disney as a historical analyst, but uh, Arsenal makes the point that uh, at least by 1956-57, uh, Disney got the message. And while it's uh, fantasy, the way Seth Parker plays uh, James Andrews, and it's not balanced, it is much more accurate history than most people would think, um, given the Disney uh, moniker. Well, I was fascinated by the idea that, that Disney was took history seriously at this point in his career, uh, and, and how disappointed he was when the historical profession didn't respond yeah. by, by lionizing him afterwards. But most professional historians said, well, you know, you got the details right, but uh, they weren't yeah, that exactly. taken but by it. it. Yeah, not only that. If you if you read the um, the uh, the reviews of the film, mm-hmm. uh, it got okay reviews in the New Yorker and in uh, Variety and those kind of places. But but the critics didn't challenge the historical accuracy. They said it was a depressing movie. Yeah. It was a depressing <laughs> movie. The the culprits got hanged, you know, at the end. Not all of them. A couple of them mm-hmm. escaped. You know, these u- union unionists who who uh, stole the train, uh, the the general, and t- tried to and uh, destroy railroad track. And uh, they were doing a guerrilla like uh, uh, activity to sort of sabotage the Confederates. So well, the-, the critics said, "Well, we don't want to hear this." That, that's a problem with history is it doesn't always give you the, the story arc you're looking for. But uh, the author of the essay makes a great point that Disney was fortunate to hit upon a Civil War story uh, with no villains and no losers. The, the yeah. Union uh, raiders are incredibly brave and do something yeah. very daring and, and original. And while it does fail, and they many of them are executed, they, they get the Medal of Honor, a lot of them. Right. And the Confederates yeah, are just trying to chase it down, and they're being very resourceful, too. So so even though we're already into the 50s and, and the civil rights movement's underway and people are taking the Civil War, uh, it's, it's once again a touch point for political argument. Disney was able to skirt that with this topic. But as the essay yeah, shows, actually, after that... Timing- 
his, his timing was pretty prescient because mm-hmm. as you know, uh, and I, I, I was, you know, a, a pre-teen, uh, the civil war centennial is just a couple of years away. Right. And, uh, a lot of people ask me, as I'm sure they ask you, these are oftentimes the same people after I give a lecture as, you know, an endowed lecture someplace and they say, mm-hmm. Oh, Dr. Smith, I just quote, love the civil war. Yes. which I always find astounding how anybody could love a war that cost uh, at minimum 750,000 deaths and trauma is unforeseen and still uh, undeveloped. But uh, people ask me, you know, how did you get hooked? Well, it was the American, the Civil War Centennial. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Catton's, uh, I don't know if you still have, I imagine you had a boyhood. Well, you weren't a Civil War guy so early as I was. But no, no, I, uh, I still have my, my boyhood copy of Bruce Catton's American Heritage Pictorial History of the Civil War. Well, let, let me just correct you on that. I, I while I, in, in grad school, I, I was more a Civil War guy than a Lincoln guy, and I definitely have my boyhood oh, copy of that book. Uh, you do? Oh, absolutely. And, and many listeners, yeah. uh, uh, all many of us came to the war through, through Catton's uh, illustrated history. Yeah. I, uh, I used to fall asleep. With that in my arms, my parents had, fake, <laughs> and I, I, as I said, I have, I have a first edition of that. Those wow. maps in there are just, They're the best. I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. It, it. I'm glad that you mentioned that about your, your listeners, because um, that book, you know, and, da- and David Bly talks about it in, in, in his essay on, um, uh, on, on Bruce Catton. But mm-hmm. um, that he wrote in, in a collection. But um, yeah, yeah, that, that Civil War Centennial. So you know, this was the sort of the, the the easy time to be. It wasn't so much about Lincoln then, but it was all about the Civil War, and of course, it was a sectional reconciliation. And of course, we know those of us who have studied this know that there were all kinds of things going on below the surface um, about uh, segregation and where they would have events and. Uh, African-Americans couldn't come, and they had to, with this meeting in Charleston, it had to be at the Charleston Naval Base because the hotels in Charleston wouldn't allow uh, African-Americans to attend and all that kind of stuff. So It, it, it really it, was sort of, it was a lot messier than it looks. We're going to take another short Like break. everything else. Yes, yeah, yeah, we'll come yeah. back in just a moment, talk some more with our guest sure. tonight, John David Smith. He's the co-editor of The Long Civil War, New Explorations of America's Enduring Conflict. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with John David Smith. He's the co-editor, along with Raymond Arsenault, of the essay collection titled The Long Civil War, New Explorations of America's Enduring Conflict, uh, John David, I want to ask you about uh, your essay in this book uh, about Ulrich mm-hmm. B. Phillips, the the historian famous for his his uh, classic and and certainly controversial work on uh, the history of American Negro slavery. Uh, you write about his time, what he did during World War One, which is not what one might expect. Right. Yeah, yeah, tell us well, about his, of, of course. I'm sorry? Yeah, go ahead. Tell us about, about uh, how you came to this topic and, and what uh, what he was yeah. doing. Well, I, 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 I don't know if you're familiar with much of my work, but I've written a lot mm-hmm. on, on Ulrich Phillips, a lot. Mm-hmm. And, of course, when I was a student, um, he was the historian of slavery that we all were taught to hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for, for obvious reasons, if one uh, takes the civil rights era racial thought of we leftists and and um, projects them backward in time to a historian who's um, wrote two major books, major major books. In one in nineteen eighteen, American Negro Slavery, and then in nineteen twenty nine, Life and Labor in the Old South. Well, he wasn't controversial then. No. He was exalted as the um, person that's written the last word on the Old South and the last word on slavery. The only place. You could find any criticism in there, very important criticism of Phillips by none other than W.E.D. Du Bois and mm-hmm. Carter G. Woodson was in the uh, newly found uh, Journal of Negro History uh, in 1918 as a review, excuse me, 1919, a review by, uh, by Woodson, and, and then there's a, a review by, by Du Bois in the American Political Science Review. Um, but those were, those were African-American scholars who were doing everything they could to challenge the theses and biases and methodological and cultural uh, of, of the E.B. Phillipses of the world. But uh, I discovered that Phillips during uh, World War I, he took a sabbatical from your, your alma mater, mm-hmm. uh, your undergraduate alma mater, and he got a sabbatical and he went down south. He was going to finish, uh, looked at a few, wanted to look at a few manuscript collections. And um, he moved his family uh, 
down to Atlanta. He was a Georgian, of course. He was born in LaGrange, Georgia in 1877. Family moved to Milledgeville about 10 years later. Went to the University of Georgia before he went up to study with uh, Dunning and got his Ph.D. at William Archibald Dunning in 1902. But while there, Phillips um, discovered that there were all, well over 9,000 African-American recruits at Camp Gordon, um, uh, Georgia, outside of Atlanta, in DeKalb, DeKalb County. And uh, Phillips convinced the people that were running the camp that they needed a specialist who was familiar with African-Americans. Uh, and Phillips, of course, was extremely well-educated, and he could read and speak French, and he taught French to these these enlistees, and he taught discipline to them, um, and he did all kinds of things to make their their uh, lives as recruits. Most of them were from the South. They were African American, many descendants from slaves. But Phillips did a lot of positive things through the YMCA. Uh, your readers, uh, your listeners probably don't know about them, but the YMCA had uh, canteens, is what they called them. Uh, at military bases in World War One, where the soldiers could go to relax and and uh, get treats and meet others uh, and get special treatments that they couldn't get during boot camp, and these were uh, wonderful places for the soldiers to get some uh, get get some respite from mm-hmm. the, the, their training to go, that they were going to go overseas to France. But what Phillips discovered was that. Um, uh, this was his way of bringing civilization to these uh, black recruits. And in fact, his work with the black recruits confirmed uh, what he believed were the virtues of white-run uh, plantation operations. He actually referred to the, the, the quarters, the, the barracks where the blacks were, uh, black soldiers, black persons, were housed as the quarter, like the slave mm-hmm. quarters. Mm-hmm. And he came away with this experience, uh, believing that white persons like himself, educated, paternalistic whites like himself, like himself, needed to control and help regulate black persons. It, in his mind, convert, confirmed the New South ethos of white racial control. So Phillips went down there and, and came away convinced more than ever of the benefits to Georgia, more convinced than ever of the benefits of slavery, the benefits of plantation paternalism, and that the necessary necessity, excuse me, of the management of subject peoples for both races to order to provide racial control over um, black folks, uh, and also to help elevate black persons as much as they could to their potential. It's hard to imagine uh, that the the primary or the, the main text that people read, the main scholarly text on American slavery, at one time essentially argued that it was a beneficial organization for everybody involved. And uh, one thing that strikes me is at the university today, we are often encouraged to be engaged scholars. You get uh, credit to for uh, scholarship of engagement, which is often quite ill-defined. But it strikes yeah. me that here is Phillips being a very engaged scholar. He is writing about yeah. black people in an institution that disciplines and controls them. Then he gets to live in such an institution, in this case the army, not a plantation. Uh, and he finds it confirms all of his 
previous uh, expectations. I wonder if that says something negative about the scholarship of engagement, that it, it might just confirm what you think going into it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. that's a very, very good point. But as a uh, Michigan alum, uh, mm-hmm. you would find, I know, very interesting uh, two articles that Phil has published in, of all places, the Michigan alumnus, mm-hmm. in which he's uh, reporting back to his dean. You know, we all have deans. Even right. Mary Phillips had deans, <laughs> you know. Who want to know what the hell he's doing on his sabbatical, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so Phillips so sends these letters back to the um, uh, Michigan alumnus. I, I don't know if they still call it that, but that was Phillips published it, and, and and he wrote all kinds of letters to his cronies back, you know, uh, very famous historians at at Michigan um, there about what his war work, and he took it very seriously. Um, and I think for us to um, besmirch Phillips for doing this um, is, is to miss the point. I think mm-hmm. it's very interesting, or I wouldn't have gone to the Great Lakes. And as you may have noticed, if you read the article, and I know you read the article, but of it course. was a sort of sidebar that uh, mm-hmm. Phillips then got a commission out of nowhere, got a commission as a captain yeah. in military intelligence. Yes, that was fascinating. You didn't spend long. Yeah, there, and I tracked that down. It was very hard to, to document that because mm-hmm. the uh, the records, um, military records for World War One, most of them, I would say 80% of them wound up in St. Louis at the National mm-hmm. Archives branch in St. Louis. And they had a horrible fire some years ago. And I actually mm-hmm. was able to get Phillips' letters uh, and his appointment as a captain in military intelligence uh, and his one report that he wrote. And it was they're all singed, scarred from the fire. <laughs> Wow. Well, yeah. we have a few minutes left. I want to definitely ask about another essay. And we're not touching on sure. ten readers are going to have to get to them. Um, but Stephen Whitfield's essay on the, the yeah. tenacity of the Southern uh, white consciousness, uh, he argues, is the reason why the Civil War continues to be such a live topic in American history. Right. Uh, and he gives a lot of examples, a lot of which are, are very timely. He talks about Confederate statues, talks about uh, right. uh, movies and so on. My question to you is, is, is given he wrote this in, well, he, I know he cites poll data from 2016 and 2017. So he's written this in the last few years. Uh, yes. Do you see any reason for hope or optimism given the persistence of the divide over the interpretation of the Civil War, that things in our lifetime will evolve in a positive way? Well, of course, you've asked the million-dollar question, given the last several years of mm-hmm. horrible racial violence and discord and and um, all kinds of things that um, just when we thought that uh, the recession of 2008 was something we were going to be worried about. But what's happened, I, I've used this, this uh, phrase in one of my books, you know, the, the, the burning embers of white racism remain dimly lit, ever mm-hmm. to be uh, brought aflame by the uh, winds of the past. So here we have the burning embers of, of, of racial disharmony, have, have become aflame in ways that 
I, I, I don't, you know, I deal with the past. I can't predict the future. But I, if mm-hmm. I had, I couldn't have predicted this. So what's the good thing? Conversation. What's the good thing? Uh, the civil exchanges of ideas. Well, it's not been so civil. Um, mm-hmm. And, you, you know, what may well happen is this pro-Southern, pro-Confederate, uh, hell no, we didn't lose, that kind of business, um, may go underground, which, of course, is, is bad. Uh, and the resentment, and I, I was just in, in, in southwestern Kentucky 10 days ago to give a, a lecture, and sure enough, I saw Confederate flags, you know, on private people's property, and mm-hmm. I saw the Robert E. Lee um, statue in Murray, Kentucky. I went there, I went there uh, after my lecture, my host took me there. And they're having a big debate there about what to do with it. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, when my host and I were there and his wife, my host's wife, a, a um, truck came by. And they said, oh, my God, these are people that must think we're trying to tear it down. Well, I just <laughs> wanted to see it. Because they were afraid they might get shot or something, you know, oh, by the locals. Um, so I, I don't know if I've answered your question. Hopefully well, it will lead... It's a good conversation. It, it is. One, one hopes for that. I, I, I certainly agree with you. We never could have predicted this. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, um, would we even be having these conversations? That, or would the Lee statue in Richmond be gone? Would Monument yeah. uh, Row be different? Uh, I would never have expected that. But I wouldn't have expected the open embrace of lost causism to regain such fear or the Confederate flag to go marching through the halls of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. So many things have happened, yeah. none of us could have predicted. Yeah, exactly, so. exactly. Uh, and that, that, that flag, for all that it symbolized and symbolizes, would be part of that um, business about the election. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, it's, uh, gee, makes me grateful I'm a historian, so at least I can try to squeeze some meaning from the past. But I, I certainly am having a hard time dealing with the present. I, I, I hear you there. The uh, uh, listeners, you may find some some comfort in this book in both seeing the wide range of approaches taken, um, seeing how President Eisenhower used history to try to steer a middle path is somewhat encouraging. Right. Uh, didn't make people happy on either side necessarily, but maybe right. middle ground is our best hope. Um, Unfortunately, we are at the end of our hour, but uh, we've been talking tonight with John David Smith, uh, co-editor of The Long Civil War, New Explorations of America's Enduring Conflict. Uh, John David, it has been a pleasure talking with you. I enjoyed the book, and I know the listeners will as well. And uh, look forward to seeing you sometime on on the trail once we're more opened up here in North Carolina. Wouldn't you think we're both in Carolina, you know, and... uh, (laughs) only several hours away and we've never actually met but thank you for inviting me and i hope the listeners found it of uh, what i had to say of some interest and if they take a gander at the book i hope they like it I'm, I'm sure they will and listeners as always thank you for listening to civil war talk radio
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.